please note that the contents of model mentality are for informational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on model mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma, a psychiatrist and mental health advocate. And I'm Bridget Malcolm, an international fashion model. And this is Model Mentality. We created this podcast to open up the dialogue about mental health in the fashion industry by exploring the lives of models through the lens of their personal mental health experience. Each episode, we will invite a leading fashion model to sit down to chat, going behind the visual imagery and what you may know of their external life to take a deeper dive into who is actually behind the mask and at the real struggles these models have faced. And in our Let's Get Clinical segment, I'll explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. Because at the end of the day, we are all human and our struggles are universal. Hit the subscribe button on the podcast and tell all your friends about model mentality. Please note this podcast is strictly for educational purposes only, and please consult your own provider for any mental health issues you may be facing. Today, we have a special bonus episode with my co-host, Bridget Malcolm. Bridget grew up in Australia and was scouted to model when she was 14 years old. At the age of 17, she moved to New York City and has enjoyed a long career, spanning from working with Victoria's Secret and Ralph Lauren to being featured in V Magazine and Harper's Bazaar. But behind the glossy pages, Bridget's personal mental health journey has been an uphill battle. She struggled for almost a decade with an eating disorder and was diagnosed with premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD, in the past few years. She has been working through issues with alcohol abuse, severe anxiety, and a history of sexual assault, both outside and within a workplace setting. Motivated by the power of a shared experience in any type of recovery, Bridget has not shied away from speaking openly about her experiences, and in fact, has been blogging for the past few years on mental health, and helped to co-produce this podcast with me to create a platform to open up the dialogue on mental health. I met Bridget during the summer of 2019, and was unduly impressed by her bravery in speaking up about mental health, and her desire to help other models and young people who have similar struggles. She specifically spoke about a time when one of her visual images was the most noticed, she was not feeling her best, possibly at her worst, and I think this story is an important one to tell. The story of the dichotomy between the perfected external visuals of Bridget and what happens internally, which is human and imperfect as we are. The day after I met her, she took the initiative to reach out to me to develop this podcast, and the rest is history. All right, so I'm going to dive right in, Bridget, um, and we'll see, you know, how you tell your story and what what comes up. So my first question is, you know, when you think about uh, your experience with uh, your own mental health struggles and concerns and issues, what comes to mind as one of the most difficult experiences for you? Well, honestly, two two kind of come to mind, but by without a doubt, like this is the the time in my life where everything changed afterwards. Like I'd had um, anxiety attacks once, basically I used to have an eating disorder and once I got into recovery from that, 
my hormones came back and I started to get cyclical anxiety attacks and just like sheer terror. And I've always been an anxious person, but this was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. And so I was having these attacks, but able to keep them at bay. And then there was one, um, I was on location for a job and it was, it was so bad. Like I thought that I was dying and I had, I got, had to go to hospital in the middle of the night. I was in a random part of the world, like a third world country. So it was a, a hospital that like wasn't very well staffed and it was in the middle of nowhere. And I had to go in and they said that there was nothing wrong with me. She basically was like, you might have a cold, like there's nothing wrong with you, like you're crazy. And I was like, great. So I went back to my hotel room and then proceeded to just have this most horrific anxiety attack of my life. Like it went for ages, like it went for so long. I couldn't get off the floor. I was throwing up my vision. Like whenever I get these things, it's like a full body experience. Like my vision closes, I can't see anything. I can't use my hands. And this, I guess what was terrible about it and the most terrifying is that it went for a very, very long time. Like normally these attacks happen and I can get through it and then I can go to sleep and I can, my day can continue. Um, but this one didn't, it just didn't stop. And so did it last over several days or hours or, you know, what was it the was, time frame? It was probably about a, oh gosh, I reckon a 24 hour time frame. Okay. Um, like I didn't sleep, I couldn't eat, I was, it was terrible. And it's interesting, whenever I have one of these um, experiences, there's always somebody, some stranger comes up to me and helps me. Like I was in my hotel room and I was freaking out and I was on the phone to my wonderful husband who FaceTimed me for the entire time. Mm -hmm. And this, there was a knock at my door and this woman came up and she's like, hey, like, do you want some Reiki? And I was like, uh, I was like crying. I looked a mess and I was like, sure, okay. And she like came in and she did it on me. And then she like talked to me and calmed me down and told me to go for a swim and that everything was gonna be okay. Yeah. And like to this day, I have no idea who she was. I don't know if she was a part of the hotel. I don't know if they heard my screaming and they were like, maybe she, this girl needs some help. Yeah. Um, but it got me through, um, it got me to set, got me through the day. And then I came back to the States and everything was different after that. Like I, I would have just sheer terror whenever my husband would leave the room. I couldn't be alone at night. Like mm. I had to have my, um, my mother-in-law travel from uh, rural Pennsylvania to me cause I had to work. Cause I couldn't tell anyone that I had an anxiety attack cause mm. they would think, oh, well that's not real. Like how you can still go to jobs. Mm. So I like left that job and then I flew straight to another job, had to shoot for two days and Luckily, my, my husband came with me for one night. Then my mother-in-law drove up about three hours from her place to spend the night with me, my second night. And like, it was terrible. I was so scared and I had no reason to be. Hmm. And I think that is the crux of all, like the, the worst part of this mental health stuff is because like, I have no reason to be scared. Like I'm yeah. safe, I'm okay. I have people who love me, I'm not alone. And yet like, I just ha get taken over like by this extreme fear. You know, and so after that, I had um, I had like a series of um, anxiety attacks that got progressively worse, but they were worse because I was afraid of that happening again. Okay. And then I got diagnosed with PMDD, and then I began to finally get some help. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I'd like to ask you a few questions yeah, around I feel that. Like I just really... threw everything out. <laughs> no, this is great. So you know that twenty-four hour period where you had severe anxiety. When you reflect back on it. Do you have a sense of what was contributing to that anxiety? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm I'm an introverted person by nature. Um, I and like I, I like to be alone. But and when I'm traveling as a model, it's great because I get a lot of alone time. But in this instant, I instance, I'd been traveling on my own 
for a while, um, like a couple of days, I had been bouncing around, I hadn't seen anybody, I hadn't been social and I isolated myself too much. And so whenever I need to be, I need people around me to kind of show me that I exist sometimes, like I, to see myself reflected back in them is like a really grounding experience, yeah. even though it's not my instinct to like seek that out. Yeah. Um, and so that was a factor that played into it. I was I was in my luteal phase of my hormonal cycle, um, and that I've learned is a dangerous time for me. Like I don't get PMS, I get ten days of hell. Okay. Um, and so if I'm not on medication, which I wasn't then, then like I'm in danger big time. Okay, and if you don't mind, yeah. I ask a question. So because you have cyclical symptoms, can you tell you know our listeners? When did this start for you? Like how old were you? When did you feel like it started to emerge? Yeah, I, I feel like this dovetails with my eating disorder because like I started modeling at 14 and I started messing with my food intake at 14 and so I never really had a normal cycle so basically like I would have I would get periods and stuff but they were very light and they it, it just basically felt like I barely had them um and then for a long time I didn't have any so this didn't really happen until I made a commitment to getting healthy and like start choosing to eat three meals a day and like making the doing the work to get better. So that for me was I believe I was 25 um, when I had my first anxiety attack, and then I had another little relapse of eating. And so it what didn't start to happen cyclically until I was about 26. Um, and yeah, I'm lucky that I, I noticed my therapist actually was like, "Do you reckon this is related to your cycle? Like, you know, have you kept track of it?" And I did, and I realized that it was. And so then I got a diagnosis of PMDD. Okay. And yeah. getting that diagnosis, like how did that, how did that affect you? Um, I was relieved because I was genuinely frightened that I was losing my grip on reality because it, it's like a Jekyll and Hyde situation. Like I am completely normal and like normal <laughs> for me <laughs> and, um, and functioning and like motivated and happy. And, you know, I, I can see the forest for the trees sort of. And then it's like I ovulate and wall comes down and yeah. I... I get scared over nothing. I get very anxious. I get very emotional. And like at my worst, I was suicidal. Like, and that was the scariest part of all. Like I have never thought about something like that. And suddenly okay. I was like seriously considering my options there. And like, luckily when I got the diagnosis, I, when I started talking about it, everyone kind of rallied to support me. And I'm so grateful for that. <laughs> And so let's go back to the eating disorder piece, mm. right? Because obviously this, the eating piece and body dysmorphic disorder has come up even in our groups and in your industry. So tell us a little bit about what happened with you in terms of eating. How yeah. old were you? Yeah. Was so, it? I mean, I've always, I've always, I'm a lanky person, but as far as models go, like I'm not that and this feels insane to be discussing this because, like, I know that I'm a skinny person. Like, I'm a size four. Like, I'm slender. Yeah. But compared to some models, like, I'm bigger. Like, some girls are just naturally tall, lanky, and a size zero to two. And, like, that's how their bodies are shaped. Yeah. And for me, I'm not. Um, and, again, this isn't me, like, saying that I'm not skinny because I know that I am. Um, but when I started at 14, I was curvier. I was bigger. Um, I didn't really – I didn't have a – never really had good eating habits. My parents did their best and like they had healthy food in the house and they like made sure that I was eating well and healthily. But I like would find junk food no matter what. And like, I think I've always just been an anxious person. So like growing up, I like to have junk food on me at all times. <laughs> um, and so I started modeling and 
you know, it was my first experience of getting measured and my hips were 36, which to me, like, I'm, I don't know what my measurements are now, but like, that's small, you know? Um, but my agency was like, you need to lose a bit of weight. And I was 14. They didn't provide any guidance on how to do that. They just said like, you need to lose weight. And I was like, huh? All right. And so I just stopped eating. And so like, I remember 14 to 16, like, I had teachers at school saying they were concerned about me, had my family being like, what's going on? Like, this is not okay. And at that age, I experienced that first like wonderful feeling of like controlling my food. Cause it's a great feeling. Mm. Like I don't endorse it cause it nearly killed me. But like, there is a reason why it was so easy to do. Cause it just like numbs you. You don't feel anything. You don't think anything. You're, you know, you feel kind of untouchable until your body starts to give out on you. And then you realize you're like doing something incredibly dangerous. Um, And so that was just my cycle for, until I was 25, like I would binge eat and then I would starve myself. So I I go on like month long cycles, six month long cycles. My last starving myself cycle lasted about a year and a half. Okay, so could you describe, you know, in the period where there was a lot of control over your food intake, how how are you feeling? Like tell us about your emotional Mm. state because of that or even physical state? I mean, physically I was horrible. I, it took me 10 minutes to climb a flight of stairs. My hair was falling out. I couldn't train, I couldn't work out, but I was trying to anyway. And like my trainer at the time, she's a friend and she was like, I was so worried about you. Like, I didn't know what to do. She's like, you could barely get through a set of anything. And um, and so physically, like I was falling apart. Um, emotionally, I was anxious, but I was mostly able to channel that anxiety around food. So if I ate exactly what I was going to eat that day, I knew that I was good and it would put my anxiety at bay. Um, and I mean, I had space mentally. Like I'm, I, um, I feel things very heavily and I think a lot and like I'm an extreme person. I go from one extreme to the other. Mm-hmm. And instead of learning to like channel that and live with that, those personality traits, I just chose to like drown them out as best I could. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I would go from zero to like completely anxious in the space of seconds, but I would then go back to zero and it was great. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you yeah. could send a message, you know, about your experience with eating disorders and restriction to like all the women, you know, in mm. the country who are listening or in the world, what would you, what would you tell them? I mean, I would say that if you feel the need to reduce your food um, and control your food in that way, I would say seek like certified mental help, like go to a therapist. And it wasn't until like I started talking about it and my therapist like so gently held up a mirror and kind of started to talk me through it and um, started to kind of link it back to this, this need I have to like drown out feelings to childhood and to just my genetic makeup. Like it wasn't until that happened um, did I even consider getting help. And it took six months, I'd say, of therapy before I finally was like, okay, like I'm ready to do this now. Because like it doesn't have to get as bad as it got for me and for other girls. Like you don't have to be in and out of hospital. You don't have to be getting fractured bones. You don't have to be, you don't have to get to that spot. Like it's okay to ask for help. Did that happen to you? I never had that. Like I, I never, when I am at my skinniest, I'm not working out. Like I'm not training. I'm not like, I'm just a a sloth basically, yeah. Um, a brain dead sloth. And I'd also like to say like the way my life has opened up since I got healthy is I would not trade that. Mm. So whenever like I have moments, cause I do, like I'm still a human. I definitely have moments where I want to stop eating, but like the trade off for that is like 
I'm giving away emotional, like the emotional range I can have. I'm giving away my ability to use my brain. I'll be giving up my study. I'll be giving up my writing. And I'll be giving up my friendships because, mm. like, I couldn't think or do anything. I was so scared all the time. Um, so it really had an impact on, like, hugely. everything. Yeah. yeah, and it's hard when you're in it to see just how much of an impact it has. Yeah. But it does, like, without a doubt. And, like, I see my friends who are models going through it now and my heart breaks for them because, like, I just want to... I just want to help them. But I know that, like, it takes hitting that place where you need to change yeah. for it to change. Or potentially hearing other stories, right? Yeah, maybe I'd hope so. Yeah. Since I started writing about it, honestly, I've had such a wonderful connection from all kinds of people. Yeah. Um, I'd also, final point, like, models, um, it's, it is, you touched on this in the beginning, like, it's a strange job because at my skinniest, I was getting the most high-profile jobs of my career. Um, and those clients didn't know I was unwell. Like, I don't hold them to blame, like, at all in any way. Mm-hmm. And I was the one who was entirely in control of how much weight I lost and how far I chose to go with it. Um, but, like, don't believe what you see online. Like, I was writing these blog posts about, like, health when I was just very, very unwell. Mm-hmm. And I, I apologise for that. And, like, I tried to own that as best I could once I was in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um but, yeah, like, I would only take advice now from, like, medical professionals because, like, they've been trained to give it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I definitely hear you say that, like, you engaging in treatment, whether it's therapy or something else, helped you and it changed you. Did you feel any resistance initially? From me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. of course. Can you talk about that? Yeah. yeah. It's like when you're in an eating disorder or an addiction or anything like that, like, there's a reason why you're choosing to do that. Um, it, it gets away from you after a while and it starts to choose you and, like, it feels like you can't control it after a while, which is the nature of an addiction like that. But, like, there's a reason. Um, and I didn't want to face it for a long time. Like, I um, ate this way since I was 14, but, like, I've been this way since I was born, I think. Like, I feel like it's just how I'm wired. And I didn't want to. I wasn't willing to listen to my therapist when she'd suggest these things and... For a while there, I didn't, and I'd go into therapy and just, like, talk about people who annoyed me. <laughs> um, but then I started to listen. I started to open up, and I think it was just – it took a humbling. You know, I realised that I couldn't take care of this myself. Yeah. Um, this is probably the first thing in my life that, like, I couldn't take care of, and I wanted to live, and I wanted to have a life that I am starting to build for myself now. Um, but, yeah, of course it was resistance. There was a lot of resistance. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> You exactly. spend a long time building these walls and someone tells you to break them down and it's like, no. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so I wanted to switch gears a little mm. bit because you mentioned recovery and I know recently you posted on social media 90 days, Yay. which is very exciting. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, so tell us a little bit then about alcohol. Yeah. Um, yeah, this has been an interesting one because I've been circling – going sober for a while. Um, I attribute sobriety to having relapsed with my eating. So like when I when I wasn't eating, I also wasn't drinking. Um, I'm an Australian. <laughs> I think I feel like binge drinking is in our cultural DNA. Um, and like growing up, I neither of my parents are heavy drinkers. In fact, like they barely drank in the house. And I definitely, it's, it, it was tricky for me because I don't fit the classical definition of someone with a drinking problem. Like I never woke up and drank. I never, we never really kept alcohol in the house. Like I never had a craving. I had no withdrawal problems. Like I, when it was time for me to stop, I stopped. 
And now I get jealous, but like, it's not like a physical craving. But where I did realize I was having a problem was like, I was just seeking to escape again. Like it was just another pivot out of an eating disorder into another way of like distancing myself from like why I am the way I am. Um, and so like I was binge drinking, like I was a binge drinker and my behavior whilst binge drinking began to get progressively worse. Um, you know, nine times out of 10, I was good. And like, we all just had a really hilarious night, but then the 10th time I'd end up in the ER or I didn't be in a blackout or, you know, something terrible would happen. And I feel like it's, it was okay for me to do that sort of stuff at, as a teenager you can drink at 18 in Australia. So, <laughs> but at 27, it's, it just started to get really embarrassing and the shame that started to accompany it was just too much. And I had a friend who got sober, um, and I decided to go with him to a few 12 step meetings because every time I quit drinking, I'd get three or four months in, I'd forget. And then I'd just go off on my merry way again and start mm -hmm. to just detonate my own life. Um, and so I started to do the work um, of going to meetings and making friends with sober people and talking about my feelings in a public mm. space, which was really hard because mm. it's hard for me to trust. Um, and I'm so grateful that I've done it, you know, it's because after I got my 90 days, I was like, oh, I'm good. Like I can probably start drinking again. And then I was like, no, I actually can't. Like I can't because doing the same thing and expecting different results each time is a sign of insanity. Like mm. it's just not going to work. And I want to stay present. Like I, I want to stay present for my life. So I'm going to sit through, I've committed to sitting through all the feelings uh -huh. and there is a lot. <laughs> yeah, that, but that's fantastic that you're doing that. Yeah. Um, and you know, with respect to the binges, mm. everyone's a little bit different in why they binge and what drives them. Do you have an understanding like what happens to you, why it gets to that point? Well, not re usually it's because there's something going on that I don't want to talk about, like something that I want to avoid. Um, but honestly, like, I don't think there's a conscious trigger. I have a drink and then it's really hard for me to consider not having a second, you know, and then before I know it, everything's gone wrong. <laughs> Somersaults. Yeah. yeah. And it's so much easier for me to just not have that first one. Cause yeah. like, if I do try and drink socially acceptably, cause I have so many friends who do, like, I know so many people who are normal drinkers, yeah. um, I have to work so hard, you know, to keep it to one or two glasses of wine. Like I have to really check myself and it ruins the night. Like it's so hard for me to be con like in the conversation and present if I'm constantly being like, okay, I've had one, like can't have another one, have some water, eat, like it's just boring. Yeah. And also like since I quit, I have so much more energy. My relationships are so much better. I'm actually owning up to my life. Like having hard conversations as a sober person is very different. Like, it, it feels really good. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really good to hear. Yeah. It's probably confronting at the beginning to without, be without the alcohol. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Because I, I sit in these rooms and I'm like, well, I'm not as bad as this person. Like, yeah. I didn't have that experience. But if you take away the experiences, like what's left is the feelings. Yeah. And it's like, it's a very specific mindset and a very specific set of feelings. And I'm just grateful that like my rock bottom wasn't as bad as it could have been. Cause like, I do believe that if I kept going, something would have happened. 
So I think it's very inspiring to hear that you're in recovery from alcohol abuse. And I'd like to switch back to talking about PMDD and specifically hearing more about your story on your recovery. And so for people don't, who may not know, PMDD is premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And we can talk more about this at the end of the segment um, scientifically. So, and, and did you go on medication? Yeah, so I, I tried to do it naturally for six months. Um, and I wish I'd gotten on medication sooner because like I was very resistant to getting on an antidepressant because I was like, well, I'm not depressed. And like, even if I was like, surely I can mind over matter this. Like I have a very strong mind. I can be very willful. Like, surely I can control this. And so I did everything. I, like, exercised, I meditated, I, like, went outside, I ate all kinds of different diets, I, like, took all the supplements, I did everything. And every cycle was just getting progressively worse. And so I finally... And then my doctor, she's like, maybe we'll try birth control, like, maybe that'll help. And I went on that and was suicidal within 10 days. And she was like, okay, maybe we take you off that. (laughs) Um, And she put me on Lexapro. And within 24 hours, I felt better. And like I took it in my hell hell time. And so I was on Lexapro for maybe four months. And I was exhausted and zombie, but I was happy. And like Mm. I wasn't losing my mind, which was just such a blessing. And so she put me on Wellbutrin as well to see if it could like help me get a bit of more energy, which just kind of made me anxious and tired. Mm. So we took me off both of those and put me on a really low dose of Prozac this year. And I'm on 10 milligrams and I go up to 20 when I'm in my hell zone. And like usually I only need to be on 20 for like three or four days and I it, it works. And it's like okay. I'm present. I'm, I get all the emotions still. I get mild PMS, but that's like a blessing compared to what I used to go through. Okay. Okay. Like medication saved my life without a doubt. Like, I wish I'd gone on them sooner. Yeah, no, that's incredible. That's incredible that you were open to that and that it helped you. I was forced open. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But the suicidality that you mentioned in the context of oral contraceptives, is that the only time you've experienced yeah. suicidal thoughts? Yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful for that because, like, yeah. I knew that that was chemically induced and yeah. I had the space to get off it and then, like, write about it and be open and honest. But, like, yeah. it was horrifying. Like, I... I I really am grateful that I am yet to experience that again. Yes. that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It was in the context of starting a new medication, you know, but just to kind of put it out there, you know, if anyone experiences that, obviously that's like an extreme crisis situation and that's a a reason to get help immediately. It sounds like you did and you needed to do that. Yeah, I reached out. I told everyone. I told my therapist. I saw my therapist. I told my friends. I told my husband. Yeah. Like I told everyone and then I blogged about it when I got better. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. And and did you feel like it came from the, the outside? It wasn't internal to you or what did it feel like for you? If you can describe it more. Um, well, it's interesting because, like, PMDD to me feels like outside. Like, it, it feels like my hormones, I don't know, it's just such a complete personality shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these ideations I was having, they were just so foreign. Like, it didn't belong to me. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why it scared me so much because, like, yeah, like, it, it just didn't, didn't belong to me. I don't really know how else to yeah, describe it. Yeah, it didn't feel like it was you. Yeah. yeah. And, like, as soon as I got off the medication, got on the antidepressants, like, I was back. <laughs> okay. No, <laughs> to a that's, degree. That's that's really good. So the yeah. PMDD, I know you mentioned at the beginning, you know, like, what was the most significant mental health moment for you? Mm. Um, but can you talk, uh, again, just as a review, like, of the symptoms you get cyclically? Yeah. 
So, how does it start? How does it, where does it progress to? Yeah, yeah. well, everyone, it, this is a fun mixed bag because I'm a member of a um, Facebook group of women, a private group, and that's been such a blessing because, like, okay. there are, I think there's 14,000 women on there from all around the world. Wow. And, like, just to see what I was going through mirrored, um, albeit online and mildly anonymously, like, was incredible because I was like, oh, far out, I'm alone, mm. you know. Um, so for me, mine is directed inwards. Um, so I feel like a lot of women get it and they they get angry, they get irrational, they um, lash out at their significant others, like, they become just different people. Um, for me, it's directed inwards. So I ovulate. I typically, ovulation for me brings a lot of anxiety. Um, and like I, my heart starts to pound and I can't stop it basically. And that's mm -hmm. usually a sign that I'm headed for a bad cycle. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, these, these are the symptoms before I got on Prozac basically. Okay. Um, so my heart would start to pound. I'd get really manic. It'd take me like three hours to get dressed because I just like couldn't do anything. So by manic, what do you mean? Because that means many things. Oh, to, right. To okay. Us, but um, it sounds like agitated. You're Yeah, agitated. Yeah. My heart pounds. I couldn't take, I couldn't grasp onto any thoughts in my head. Yeah. I was, I would like get focused on doing one thing. So I would like, I'm really good now at focusing that into like cleaning the house. Like everything is at a right angle to each other when I'm in one of these phases. And like, I just focus on getting that done because like I can't mentally focus. I can only like just do um, and so I can't study. Anything I try and do then will be just gibberish. Um, so, yeah, I get manic like that. I get, I guess, not manic. I hyper-focused and very anxious. Um, anything triggers me. Like, I can get into a full-blown anxiety attack in seconds. Mm. Um, and I, I get fr very easily startled by, like, loud noises, by smells, by lights. Like, it, it's very strange. And, and how then, is your sleep during that period? Does it get affected? I will say the one good thing about PMDD is that I sleep like a boss. Okay, like, <laughs> I was an insomniac up until I was 21 and I used to like take Ambien and um, Xanax. I took it every night for five years. I had no idea it was that bad for me. And I never abused it. Like I never went above um, my recommended dose, but I was like taking it every night, which is not recommended. Yeah. So I shudder to think what's going to happen to me in like 50 years, <laughs> but fingers crossed nothing. Um, <laughs> So I was an insomniac for that long and then I stopped taking it. Um, and then actually when I like met my husband, I started sleeping like a baby for the first oh, time in my life. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's amazing. Um, and so PMDD hits and I guess physically, like it's like someone, gravity becomes really freaking strong. Like I am exhausted. I can't do anything. Um, everything hurts. I get nauseous. Everything smells really intense. Um, and then, so sleep's not a problem. It's great. Okay. I sleep too much. Like I'll get 12 hours of sleep a night and nap for three hours. Okay. Um, and then usually after the intense agitation comes, um, well, I mean, when I'm manic, I do like go on shopping binges and stuff. Like I've had, I, I do things that I'm like, what the? that <laughs> yeah so impulsive yeah things. like very yeah. not normal okay. um and so for a second there I thought I might be bipolar because of that but then I noticed it was linked to my cycle and and it disappears very quickly okay. so then after that I get thrown with a lovely deep depression um where all my emotions are just so roiled up like everything makes me cry I when I'm at my worst I find it hard to leave my house because like I'm frightened of everybody. Like, I feel like everyone's a stranger. My husband becomes a complete stranger and I, I like, get stuck in these thought processes of, like, why is he with me? I'm such a 
terrible person. Like, how can you not hate me as much as I hate me? It's a lot of negative self-talk. Yeah, yeah, and it just, like, I just attack myself, basically, with, like, thoughts. And I, I become convinced that I need to drop out of school or move to a different part of the world or, mm. I don't know, cut my hair or get a tattoo, like, change, you know. I'm like, maybe if I do this, I'll feel better. Um, and so for the first, I've lived in America since I was... 17 I had um for the first 10 years I had like 16 different apartments because I never oh, stayed wow. longer than a lease so I was like maybe I'll be better here okay so you're <laughs> moving to try and fix things but yeah. of course as we know like you carry with you yeah wherever you go everywhere I went there yeah. I was <laughs> interesting yeah. um and so then like I would fall into this depression and I would stay there um it, what was the scariest bit was that like everything I thought would be real wasn't and that was by far the most terrifying thing because I feel like I've got a fairly good pragmatic grip on reality. Um, but when I'm in my PMDD zone, like nothing is real. Um, and, and that anxious phase that you described versus the depressive phase, how, how many days does that last? So typically for anxious for three days. Um, this is if I'm unmedicated. Yeah. And then I'll be depressed for probably about seven. Okay. And then just before my period comes, I get very anxious, like super duper anxious, super irrational, like, you know, just the anxiety comes back. And then I get my period and then on day two I'm back to myself. Okay. It's like complete. Wow. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Shift. Yeah. Um, did your husband notice these changes? Yeah. yeah I imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I went from like myself to just like this just scared creature who just couldn't stop crying and yeah. like couldn't see reality. But it's a significant amount of time per month, yeah. right? Like I, yeah. I think I have it quite severely. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it's terrifying. And so now with Prozac, like, I'm on a month round. Usually I get a bit anxious around um, ovulation, but I can deal with that now. I can channel that into working out because the physical symptoms aren't as bad. Yeah. And then the depression hit, so it hit me um, maybe two, three days ago. Mm. So I started crying for no reason, and I was like, well, time to up my dose. Yeah, <laughs> so you know, you can sell, yeah, regulate yeah. your medications. Yeah, and then, yeah. like, I cancelled everything the day after and just, like, stayed at home and cried a lot and was just like, this is going to pass. And then the next day I woke up and I felt better. Okay. Like this, doing this a year ago, like I wouldn't have been able to. So like, how did you function as a model then in your work when you, <laughs> when you were not taking Prozac um, during this, during these periods? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my husband travels with me to a lot of jobs, which is incredibly, I, I mean, I'm so lucky. And during my worst times, he's always traveled with me. And having him there, because like a lot of the times when I have one of these attacks, if there's just someone with me, like if there's someone in the room who can kind of remind me that like I'm okay, you know, like, and so I'm lucky. Um, I have a lot of really old clients who I've worked with since I was like 20. Um, and that's a long time for a model. Yeah. <laughs> and like I've worked with them every month and their family. And, you know, I've had sleepovers with like a makeup artist before, like, I was having a bad anxiety attack and my husband reached out to him and he came home um, to the hotel and we had a sleepover and I was able to go to work the next day. So as a model, like, I am incredibly lucky with the people who are around me because, like, I've had to cancel. Um, I had a big job and I was in a really bad state and I called uh, my agent and someone who I work with closely and um, I was just hysterical and he was like, it's okay, like, we cancel, take your time, like, you, you can figure this out. Um, and, like, my mother agent has come over and, like, taken care of me in an anxiety attack. Like, I'm incredibly lucky 
you know, because there's no way I could do this job if I didn't have people around me who are willing to work with me at my worst. Um, and I'm thankful because the space that they kind of made for me at my worst, like, I'm good now. Like, I know what to do. I can work now. I'm reliable. Because there was a long period there where I wasn't. Um, right. So in, in a way, your disclosures and your openness about it, I mean, you found your voice over time, really helps you in your work. And people 100%. know, and it can, like, reinforce a really positive work environment. Yeah, and yeah. I was really frightened to talk about it because, like, I never wanted um, to be the reason why I didn't get any jobs. Like, I never wanted to come across as unreliable or as unprofessional because, like, I know that I'm not. You know, I'm, I've always said yes to everything and, like, I've always, to the point where I've, like, burnt myself out many times. Um, but, like, I've, I realise what a blessing this job is um, and I realise what a blessing it is to do this job fully honestly because, like, for a long time I just was doing it and, like, going through the motions. But, like, now I get to, like, speak and be honest about when I'm not doing okay and I can still work, which is really cool because, <laughs> like, I never thought that that would be possible. And honestly, like writing honestly, <laughs> um, writing openly about it came as like, I wrote a blog post that I wasn't, I didn't think about and like I didn't plan on it getting picked up. And like, I remember I was in New Orleans and I, on a job and I woke up the next morning and like it had gone viral. And I, I was super grateful to be able to like connect with people within the fashion industry and also the world at large on such a large scale, I guess. So if you could send a message to maybe other models, maybe new faces, right, mm. who are new to the industry, um, what would you like to tell them? Again, like, seek help because this is a gnarly job. Like, it's, it's, there's no guidebook to it. It's constantly changing. Like, the industry that I came into at 14 is dramatically different from the industry now. Um, and, like, you can't do it alone. Um, find a therapist and someone who can, who you vibe with. Cause like I had many before and I was like, you don't understand me. Like you don't know what this is like because it's rare that unless you've had direct experience, like it's rare that you cannot, can relate. Um, but find someone, keep in touch with your family, keep your family involved as much as you can. Like I, my parents traveled with me, um, to every job until I was 18, um, and well, until I moved to New York, so I guess I was 17, but still, you know, like they were around and they were as present as they could be. And I'm so grateful for that because it could have gone so much worse. Um, stay in touch with your friends from home if you have friends from home, because like the this job can get you so swept up in it. And like for me to be able to go home and be with the girls from my high school and like we're all still really close and I just like fit in to exactly where I was all through high school. Mm. Um, and they just kind of bring me back to earth and remind me of who I am. And I'm so lucky to have them. Um, and also, like, ask for help. There are every model I've ever spoken to, um, who I've spoken to about, like, offering help to other models, like, you know, they've all said that they're open and they're willing and they want to. It's just that the framework isn't there for them yet. So, like, I mean, yeah, like, don't be intimidated by other models because what you're going through they've gone through a million times over. Um, and then get a team around you that you can trust. Like for me, I've worked as a long time and I've always had great relationships with my bookers and I've been blessed in that like, I've never had a bad booker. Like for what was going on in my career at that time, every single one I've had has been perfect. Um, but it wasn't until I kind of fell in with my mother agent, who's like an old friend who I trust implicitly and like found an agent who works with me and who like, 
when I say I can't come in to get digitals just yet because I'm hormonal and my body dysmorphia is really bad, they go, all right, come in when you're right. <laughs> you know, they don't measure me. They don't tell me to like put on weight, lose weight or anything. They're just like, like I go to clients now where the samples are a size four and it's like, wow, that's amazing, you know? Mm. Um, so I guess surround yourself with people that you know you can trust. And I mean, my friend, there's one friend of mine who I respect immensely. She's been incredibly successful and she has these like lines in the sand. She's like, you do not cross this. And like, so she has certain things that need to happen for her to do a job um, and she doesn't cross them. And like, because of that, I feel like she's been managed to keep herself quite safe. Um, yeah. And also, I mean, bottom line, like this is an unregulated industry. So if you're going to a test shoot with a photographer you've never heard of before, do some research, ask girls, um, ask your booker. If you're at all uncomfortable at any time on a set, if someone touches you in any way that they're not like hired to do, then leave. Like you don't need to stay there and make the room happy. Like I've had instances where someone's touched me inappropriately and I was too young and I kind of just froze and I didn't know what to do. So, and I just was like, well, I can't upset this room. Like, you know, I've got to just stay and kind of finish my job. And it stuck with me, you know. I wish I'd handled it differently. Um, what do you think you could have done at that point in your career? Well, so I would have been 20 um, and it was a test shoot and it wasn't a high-stakes job. Like, it wasn't like it was a campaign shoot or anything big. I could have just left. Like, he, he was touching me inappropriately. He was saying things that are inappropriate. He made me feel so uncomfortable. Um, I, I could have just gotten up and left and it wouldn't have had an impact on my career. I've had other girls tell me stories where it was much higher stakes. Oh God, I mean, ideally, ideally agents wouldn't have put them in that position to begin with. Like they shouldn't be sending young girls to shoot with known predators, you know? And if they do, then they need to be on that set and on that location. And I think like agents don't ever want that to happen. Like every time that's happened to me, I've told my agent and they've been horrified mm. and they haven't sent any of their models to work with them again. And they've been like, oh my God, you should have called me. Like. I would have like tried to do something. Um, so I think again, it's just like opening up. Yeah. Um, and I think this safety piece, I know this is something really important mm -hmm. to you and near and dear to your heart and you're working on something mm -hmm. to think about this. Um, but that's something we should explore, you mm. know, I think maybe separately, but regarding the safety issue, um, can you comment on how those experiences have impacted your mental health? For a long time I was I've always been very good at compartmentalizing so I like and I've learned to use that power for good but when I was younger I used it to protect myself so I just kind of was like well that sucks like I kind of just like pushed it down and managed to forget it for quite a while because like I didn't want to remember it it wasn't serving me and like shortly after that, I began to get anxiety and I start, it would get very uncomfortable on set. And like I had a lot of walls up around photographers in particular, um, just because like I didn't want to give an inch. I didn't want to like give them anything that made them think that they, um, that they could do something like that or pull a stunt like that. Um, and, you know, I think that that kind of helped me back in my career a lot because like you can be nice and okay with the room and not like be totally unfriendly um and it also like it made me suddenly question everybody like there are a lot of photographers in the industry who are good guys like and they're friends and they are lovely humans and for a long time it made me question everyone's ulterior motives um 
And it sucks because it stopped me from relaxing and enjoying the fun parts of modeling because yeah. there are some great parts of this job. Like I'm incredibly lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Me Too movement happened and all of a sudden I remembered all these experiences. Like in, there was something that happened in high school and there was like getting sexually assaulted on photo shoots and then like I got really angry and I started to have recurring nightmares about some of the individuals in this. Mm. Um in my stories and yeah, I got really, really, really angry. And then I realized that like, you know, I didn't, I mean, it, it, it's okay that I went through it. It wasn't my fault. Um, I certainly didn't encourage this guy to do what he did. Um, and like, I needed to talk about it and you know, my way of like helping, my way of feeling okay with what happened is like trying to provide framework for other models so that it doesn't happen to them, I guess. Because, like, there's no reason for it to happen in this job. Like, there's no reason. There's no need for it to ever happen. It's just that, like, it's unregulated and these individuals have gotten away with it for so long. Yeah. And it's messed up. Thank you so much for talking about all of the different topics and aspects of mental health. So just to bring it back, um, just thinking, you know, obviously we met uh, through a group. And I was just wondering if you could tell people, you know, why you have chosen to be an advocate, why you've chosen to tell your story and what that's been like for you? Mm. I feel like I've always had that sort of personality. If there's something that, like, I'm interested in... Well, actually, you know what? What triggered this? Because I feel like this has been a personality trait that's, like, dormant for a long time because I wasn't eating and so I wasn't thinking and I wasn't feeling. Um, But what triggered it in particular was, like, my 18-year-old cousin who lives in New York State got scouted to model at my wedding by like three different people. And suddenly like, and my aunt has been, you know, she's lived close to me for a lot of my adult years. And I'm so lucky to have her and have that family nearby. Like she's been an incredible landing pad whenever I've just been overwhelmed or burnt out. And, um, and, um, sorry, I'm like getting choked up thinking about that. I'm so lucky. Um, and so, when her my cousin got scouted, like I've known her since before she was born, like, and she's gorgeous and she's sweet and she's so much more, like she's so much more clued in, but like gentler than I was at that age. Like I feel like at that age, I mean, I've been modeling for four years. I was hardened. I was like worldly. I was forced to be traveling on my own. Um, and I just thought of like her going through some of the stuff that I've gone through. And I was just like, man, like it'd be great if she could model and not get sexually assaulted if she could model and not have anxiety attacks alone in hotel rooms like if she could model and enjoy the wonderful freedom that this job gives you the all the cool and strange people it puts you in touch with and the relationships you build and all the places you get to travel and the money which is insane to be making at such a young age like it'd be cool if she could do those things and not have to deal with I mean, maybe she will have to end up in therapy. I don't know. But, like, deal with the fucking years of therapy and, like, you know, everything that I've had to deal with, which I'm, again, like, I'm grateful that it happened because it's been very fulfilling um, to advocate, I guess, and to write and to do this. But, man, it would have been nice to have, like, avoided some of it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, look, hopefully by you opening up your story, you're going to help others, including your cousin, but many, many others to, yeah, I hope so. to seek help and to prevent, you know, things from 
getting worse. Yeah. So, and I, I would just say you're very brave in, in telling your story and the way you post on social media, and that's going to help a lot of people. So thank you for that. Yeah, I just wanted to add one final thing to that is like mental health and wellness of models is incredibly important because like models are supposed to represent like this ideal, you know, we're supposed to represent like this beauty ideal and you know, kids see us in magazines and now because of Instagram, they can look us up and like they can start to follow us. And, you know, models can have now got voices and they are advocates for certain lifestyles. And I feel as though if models are advocates for health, mental health, physical health and can actually be role models, you know, I, I feel like that's going to have a wonderful trickle down effect to the world at large. Like if they can look at a model and know what she's been through and know that she's in it still and like functioning and fighting like maybe not fighting functioning and happy and healthy like that to me um would be an ideal ends to all this you know i because like no no woman should ever be told to diminish in size and no woman should ever be told that like she's just a pretty face like it's messed up that that's the message we've been putting out there and yeah i've seen the industry change you know there are certain big clients who used to kind of sexualize really really skinny girls and they're not doing very well and there are clients who are starting to, who have always supported women of all shapes and sizes and backgrounds, and they're doing really well. And it's like, it's exciting to be a part of it at this time. You know, I feel like it's like the time is right. Everyone's ready and willing to listen. And it'll be cool if we could change like the world at large. Absolutely. Um, so I'm so glad you said <laughs> that. And my um, two cents is that like the purpose of doing this is to really build mental health awareness. Obviously, you have specific, you know, risk factors in your industry that might affect mental health. But, you know, the, the issues that come up in terms of mental health are universal. They're not socioeconomic dependent or industry dependent. They come up and different risk factors may, you know, cause them to express themselves in different ways. But really the hopes with this podcast is to start building awareness to open up your stories, right? And I think there, as I said before, there is something power, powerful about you know, the perfection of the visual and the image that you may portray or may put out on social media, coupled with your stories of like who you are, which is a real person, right? And <laughs> real struggles. So I hope that message is heard. And thank you so much for doing this. Oh, and more to come, <laughs> many, many more episodes and, and interventions. All right. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. You are listening to Model Mentality. Welcome to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. In this segment, I explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. You've been listening to my interview with Bridget Malcolm, my co-host on Model Mentality. Let's review what we've heard from Bridget's story. She started modeling at age 14 and started altering her food intake also at the same age, until she had more serious symptoms like her hair falling out, low energy to the point that she could not work or think clearly. She did not realize how dangerous her eating habits had become. She mentions a few times that she needed to drown out her emotions and that the control around her food intake helped her to feel numb. In her early years, Bridget's anxiety was channeled around food. Later in her mid-twenties, the anxiety became more severe and was found to be cyclical, linked to her menstrual cycle. Concurrently, alcohol abuse was becoming a larger issue for Bridget, and the Me Too movement emerged and brought to the surface all of the emotions of Bridget's earlier history of sexual assault both outside of and within the workplace. At the time of when this podcast interview was recorded, Bridget had been sober for 90 days and had been and is now on the road to feeling her emotions, confronting her ghosts, and being more present in her life than she ever has been. 
Although there is a lot to expand upon from Bridget's story, the two clinical themes that I would like to highlight are, one, the need to numb out emotions, and two, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD. So what's the pattern in Bridget's story about the need to numb out her emotions? If we go back to the time in her life where she described that the control around eating helped to numb out her emotions, what I hear in this is that her emotions, whether conscious or not, were difficult for her to tolerate, and she found safety in feeling numb. That strategy may work in the short term, but in the long term, it does not bode well for emotional balance, and as we hear in her story, the solution lies elsewhere. So with regard to those heavy emotions, my mind immediately jumps to the questions, what are those emotions about? And could she have been better served by working through the emotions in the hands of a skilled therapist rather than avoiding them or feeling the need to numb them out by altering her eating habits? Of course, this is easier said than done. She may not have been aware of the need to confront how she was feeling until things progressed. In a similar light, in her mid-20s, when she was starting to experience more anxiety, alcohol abuse was also emerging as an issue, and this was around the time that the Me Too movement was taking place, and I would speculate the alcohol served a purpose to calm down the anxiety. The focus on alcohol, similar to her focus on eating habits, drowned out her emotions. In psychiatry, as we know, alcohol use and anxiety often go hand in hand. Now with her sobriety, her recovery, and her work in therapy, Bridget is directly addressing the emotions which were underlying both the eating habits as well as reaching for alcohol. Moving to the second topic, let's talk about Bridget's diagnosis of premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD, that she was given at the age of 26, one year after she started to experience anxiety attacks. So what is PMDD? PMDD is a form of depression that affects about 5% of women of childbearing age. Some of the symptoms include mood swings, irritability, anger, feeling down or at times hopeless, with overwhelming negative thoughts, anxiety, tension, or feeling on edge. And these symptoms show up at a discrete time during the menstrual cycle, usually starting the week before. As we heard in Bridget's story, before she found the right treatment, she would experience three days of severe anxiety, followed by seven days of depression every month. So what to do? If this sounds like you, you can start to track your symptoms and see if there's a pattern around your menstrual cycle and report back to your doctor. The caution here is to not self-diagnose and instead seek help from a provider who can help to evaluate what you are experiencing. A healthcare provider or psychiatrist can first look for other explanations, such as medical causes, and screen for substances such as drugs, alcohol, and prescription pills, which may explain in part or in full the cause of the symptoms. The good news is that there is treatment available, and you can feel better too, as Bridget does today, with the right treatment in place. The only other thing to add here is the part that Bridget mentioned about her having suicidal thoughts when starting a certain medication and feeling improved on another. The takeaway here is that if you feel suicidal, this needs immediate attention and evaluation by a clinician. Bridget knew to seek help and with the help of her providers, identified the underlying issue and quickly found a way forward. For some of you, this may be difficult to listen to or feel heavy. The great news is that Bridget is on the road to recovery. We are sharing her story so that you can personally see the dichotomy between the stunning external images of Bridget and her most personal and inner struggles that she has faced. 
We want you to understand that you are not alone, that there is power in speaking up and in asking for and receiving help. For Bridget, no doubt that this is the case, and I'm honored to know her and work with her so that we can continue to open up the dialogue on mental health together. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. Please check our show notes for references and more information on this episode. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. What you have heard on model mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.